0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, My name is George Steele. I'm the new director of the Miller Theater uh, here at Columbia. I've been here since November. uh, And I'm uh, thrilled to have inherited a tremendous program of concerts and uh, discussions and films and all sorts of things. Uh, And probably foremost among my joys is this four evening series called Intolerance, The New Intolerance. Um, As some of you may know, it began last week uh, with a rather interesting discussion on the new intolerance in politics. Uh, And this week, it continues the new intolerance in sex. Uh, We have a very fine panel, uh, and we're looking forward to quite a marvelous evening. Um, This program is the joint uh, brainchild of the Penn American Center and the writing division here at the School of the Arts. Uh, And it's my thrill, uh, working here at the theater, to be able to collaborate with two wonderful organizations like this uh, to produce a kind of programming that I don't think uh, would occur anywhere else in the city. Uh, so without uh, speaking too much further, uh, I think we'll begin the evening. Um, it should be quite nice. There are two more evenings uh, the following Wednesdays in February on Intolerance in Race is the next one, a week from tonight, and two weeks out is Intolerance in Art. Um, so I hope you'll join us for uh, the last two as well. Thank you.
1: Good evening. I'm Mary Gordon. Welcome to uh, the second of Penn's series on intolerance in America. Our subject tonight is intolerance in sex. I just want to mention that this program is jointly sponsored by Penn and by the Columbia University School of the Arts. I'd like, for I may, to introduce our panel. <clears throat> Richard Bernstein reported from China for The Washington Post served as Times first bureau chief, was a bureau chief editor for the New York Times, and is now one of the New York Times daily book critics. His new book, The Coming Conflict with China, was published in February 1997. Michael Cunningham is the author of the novels A Home at the End of the World and Flesh and Blood, both published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, who will publish his new novel, The Hours, early in 1999. He teaches in the general studies and MFA programs at Columbia. Catherine Harrison is the, of three, the author of three novels, Thicker Than Water, Exposure and Poison, and a memoir, The Kiss. She's contributed personal essays to The New Yorker, Harper's, Vogue, The New York Times Book Review. She has taught at Columbia University's creative writing program. Carol Mesa is the author of, author of six works of fiction, including *Oriole*. The American Woman in the Chinese Hat, The Art Lover, and Ghost Dance. Her latest novel, Defiance, is forthcoming from Dutton in May 1998. She is currently a professor and the director of creative writing at Brown University. Roger Shattuck has taught French and comparative literature at Harvard, the University of Texas and Austin, and the University of Virginia. He is emeritus professor at Boston University. Some of his books are forbidden knowledge from Prometheus to pornography. Um, I think that's everybody, is it? Um, One of the things that we've been struggling with and uh, we hope to struggle publicly with is uh, the broadness of this question. You put together two words intolerance and sex and you're going to have a lot of people with a lot of different opinions. So we thought we'd just start by having each panelist um, talk about when or where she or he enters. Why is he or she here? What is it that that is the focus of her or his particular interests? So we'll start with Richard, if we may.
2: Okay, thank you, Mary. Um, When I was called last week uh, with the title intolerance in sex, I kind of rebelled against the idea of the panel itself, um, feeling that intolerance in sex, in a sense, isn't much of an issue anymore. I've uh, been thinking for some time about the way in which the old uh, civil rights categories, civil rights movement categories kind of carry over. Uh, as the, almost as though there's a kind of nostalgia for the old cause uh, <clears throat> groups have formed and individuals have formed around certain issues uh, and they need those issues to stay alive to justify their activities uh, not, I'm sorry I put that more cynically than I should uh, it's what they genuinely believe but it stems from in my view a, a failure to recognize the extent to which the world has changed and when it comes to Sex, I'm sure. I, I mean, I, we've been talking about this for an hour and a half, so I have some sense of uh, where the other panelists uh, stand on the issue. There is, and I, I know that uh, there's a kind of, a, I think, a core agreement uh, on, the, on the issue that intolerance in sex hasn't completely disappeared. Uh, there's uh, certainly intolerance of homosexuality. Uh, so in saying what I, what I say, I don't want to give the impression that I've forgotten all about that. But generally speaking, the question of in, uh, intolerance doesn't really apply for me because I think we have never been in a more tolerant mode uh, in sexual behavior or in, the exp- or in se- uh, expression about uh, sexual behavior. Uh, let me put it, I-, I sometimes talk about anti-Semitism in this way when uh, Jewish friends complain about anti-Semitism in America. My reply is that never in the history of the world Uh, In the entire history of the world, uh, the time and the place when more Jews have lived in conditions of freedom and prosperity is now today in the United States of America. I feel to some extent like that uh, with regards to intolerance and sex. I think that there has never been a time uh, when more people uh, express themselves basically freely, both in terms of their behavior and and in their writings, about matters pertaining to sex, uh, as they do right now in the United States of America. In fact, if anything, I think maybe the question ought to be, is there too much tolerance of sex, uh, sexual expression and sexual behavior? Have we gotten to the point where uh, we've lost our uh, sense of direction on this question, where, we've, where uh, anything goes uh, to the point where we have serious social problems in the country because of the absence of discipline or the absence of any kind of uh, standards? Or afternoon television, uh, does this morally degrade us? The, uh, the, the disappearance of a sense of reticence uh, in, the, in the discussion of sex, uh, is it in some sense degrading? Even the way I use that word degrading, it's not a word that you hear, it's an old-fashioned word. It's almost as though nothing uh, can be degrading anymore. We're so tolerant of anything that nothing Uh, can be degrading. Uh, The contentious point that I brought up in our discussion earlier is my feeling that there's sort of one exception uh, to this general rule of tolerance. There's one area in which a kind of censoriousness uh, exists, and beyond censoriousness, it's um, an area where there's actually uh, government-enforced litigation, uh, uh, prosecution, uh, people losing their jobs and being thrown in, in prison, uh, it's, a, it's a murky and difficult topic, but uh, I think that there is probably more intolerance of male heterosexual desire uh, now than there is, certainly in the elite uh, institutions of the society, than there is about practically any other kind of sexual behavior. And the case that, I, that comes particularly to mind is the one that I read about in the New York Times yesterday uh, and in previous days about this Sergeant uh, McKinney uh, the leading staff sergeant in the army, the sergeant major, who uh, faces 57 years uh, in prison, is being court-martialed now, uh, essentially because he uh, used uh, the power of his office to persuade uh, uh, women uh, to have sex with him. He's not even accused of of rape. Uh, now, clearly, I mean, the... the uh, The the lead in the New York Times page one yesterday was uh, that he uh, he combined crude overtures, complaints about his wife, and bids for sympathy after the death of his son uh, as he tried to seduce a staff sergeant, according to opening statements and testimony his court-martial today. Um, I think, paradoxically, in the midst of this atmosphere of tremendous tolerance, there is a kind of hysteria. Uh, surrounding the question of sexual harassment, uh, male uh, heterosexual desire in general. Uh, I have more to say on that subject later, but I think I probably used up my time and let somebody else have the floor.
3: Catherine? Um, yes. Uh, I found myself thinking a lot about the word intolerance, um, and like Richard was uncomfortable with it because I think that we Uh, we exist in a culture that has almost a forced permissiveness that there is um, that as a society we collectively want to think of ourselves as liberal as accepting of all kinds of diversity sexual diversity in life in art and that that new permissiveness has come quickly it's replaced a lot of rules that we used to have as guidelines and that the hysteria around issues of sex comes out of fear because we're in a position of looking for looking for the safety and the lack of ambiguity that old black and white standards used to promise us, and you can see it across society and in the resurgence of fundamental religion that provides answers and is deeply uncomfortable with unanswered questions. And that right now as, as a society we have, um, we're deeply uncomfortable with ambiguity, with grayness, and that uh, nowhere more than in issues of sex, um, and that that's sort of reflected in, in, uh, in literature, in, uh, in our discomfort with departures from stereotypes, that there are certain stories that satisfy, uh, that reflect um, stereotypical situations that we're comfortable with. Uh, a book like The Bridges of Madison County is gonna get a huge, Readership because it doesn't really threaten our sense of what is okay or not okay. Other books are going to be uh, are going to provoke um, hysterical responses or be marginalized because they they do reflect ambiguity. They ask questions instead of answer them.
4: <laughs> I am not an expert. I have no wisdom on the subject. <laughs> if you paid ten dollars expecting wisdom from me, I'm sorry. I give you you can come back, I'll give you a sandwich from the green room afterwards. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a gay man. I write novels about people, some of whom are some of whom are gay men. Um which is why I'm here. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't feel especially comfortable speaking down from a stage to, I mean, we're, we all know what we know about this. Um, I was struck, especially, um, by the fact that, that, what, this is Wednesday, three, three days before the panel on Sunday, the Sunday Times Magazine, did you see it, ran um, a story in which a, a, a guy from BU named Alan Wolfe um, did a survey of sort of suburban Americans and found that they were um, very tolerant of, of other religions um, the right to choose races that races that were not theirs and wildly balky about about homosexuality that was it that was where it stopped and um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going on. Like we were talking in the green room, and, and somebody said, "Well, what about Alan? What about what about in, you know, In and Out is a date movie." And I agree. I mean, you know, there's there's great, there's serious things going on. And at the same time, um, the state of Maine just bowed to religious pressure and overturned um, all its, its its gay rights protections. Um, there are hidden there are hidden cameras in gay bars. Did you know this? It's true I know it sounds crazy. I know it's just like a crazy person on a stage. Who, <laughs> and I am. But, <laughs> but, it, but it does happen to be true, um, because they're so afraid of being shut down. The, the, the Giuliani, administra- Giuliani administration has gotten so tough that um, if anyone has sex, anyone on the premi- anywhere on the premises and gets caught, you, know, your bar's over. Um, so clearly something's going on. I don't know what it is. I think it's a widespread hysteria that isn't strictly about gay people. I, I have a feeling, as, as far as that time story goes, that, that, that people's hatred of, of gay men and lesbians is just the one they're most proud of. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a big, fascinating mess. And I look forward to hearing what um, you all have to say about it. Carol.
5: Hi. Um, I speak to you through the uh, fog of pregnancy, so forgive me for (laughs) all my wanderings and incoherencies tonight. Um, My whole life really is literature, and um, I don't feel qualified to really speak on anything in a way but literature. And I'm really interested in um, the erotic in literature, and I'm very interested in um, how the sexual is portrayed and how it um, manifests itself in fiction, in nonfiction, in poetry, in all different forms. And um, I, I'm am a little bit um, wary of this uh, so-called new tolerance that every that you know people think things are okay now, things are are going well. Um, It's true that now one can write as graphically and as sensationally and as reductively about sex as we please. In fact, it's rewarded. Writers are applauded for being um, so-called honest, graphic, prurient as possible. That's where the highest advances come. That's where all the money is these days. And it's um, TV-generated. It's sensational. It's formulaic. It's, um, to my mind, the the new true pornography. it's market-driven. It's um, uh, the rewards for this kind of work are impossible. To my mind, though, we're an extremely Philistine culture. And um, the last taboo in, in erotic writing or in, sex- in, in depicting the sexual um, in art is the art form itself, the way, the way um, the story is written, how we write the story, where we have great prescriptions on this still. We still have to write in 19th century novel fashion to be published, and we still need to even though we can write about sex as graphically as we can, most sex now, most writing about sex is like reading the phone book or you know the newspaper or something. Form, if it's exploited, is forbidden, and it's forbidden. It comes from um, publisher publishers. It comes from a very deeply conservative strain within, I think, all of us in the country. And um, I think that um, new forms are constantly being curbed. And um, if writing is essentially an erotic act um, and an erotic space, which for me it is, then when these things are curbed, my freedom is also being curbed, and my pleasure is also being curbed, and presumably readers as well. Presumably, you know, when you're not given those choices, and so what? To, and and when we're pressured to emerge already constructed and already prescribed to fit into these narrow senses of what's okay, um, then we will be tolerated. Otherwise, we won't be tolerated. So I think it looks like one thing, and yet, actually, it's quite something else that's going on. And I think this is true in terms of homosexuals and all that. Um, I think it's a similar kind of thing. And it overlaps my feelings about this overlap into how the homosexual is pro- portrayed and what's OK and what's o- or not, and how it seems on some level to be, yeah, a much more tolerant place to be than it was um, 100 years ago. But um, I think that people in this country who believe that there's a new freedom and a new tolerance as far as this is concerned are, um, are finding ways in which to believe that safely. And to my mind, um, you know, homosexuals, we will be tolerated um, if we are Ellen, for instance. Ellen is a model that will do very nicely in this case. She's perky, she's sanitized, she's clever, she's funnier than most straight people. You know, <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> um, I think, or, on the other side of that, we can be like a Silence of the Lambs man, or uh, Andrew Kunanen or somebody like that, because that also, the yearning in the culture for the garish, for the ways to dismiss or to embrace, I think it's a very complicated issue. And I think that, um, to my mind, to my mind, this whole notion of what tolerance is and what intolerance is, and how it masquerades, and how you know, the, the um, heterosexual white man fits into this will be an interesting part of the conversation as well. Anyway, i sorry, <laughs> go on.
6: I'm going to plant a question without giving up my time, if I may, a question to you. Why is writing essentially an erotic act? Why not a uh, religious act or an act of observation? or a uh, philosophical act? I you, can, and I, well, do you want to answer it. now?
5: Does, I mean, I consider a religious, spiritual, erotic, all parts of the same, the same, um, the same space.
6: So. Well, that, that's too easy for me, but now I'll... <laughs> I'll <laughs> let me uh, carry on. Uh, so responding to the last two, uh, I would agree Uh, There are three fields in which there are no experts, because everyone is an expert. Uh, Those fields are childhood, uh, education, and sex. We all know all about them, and there's no reason to have a three-foot platform out out here to put us up on. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, Difficult area we are entering, namely, well, outside it says uh, the new intolerance in sex, and and here on a program it says uh, intolerance in sex. Uh, I think a good deal of this depends upon what map we enter this terrain with. Uh, And there are two maps I'll talk about. There is the old map, which separates uh, in, in, uh, in what pertains to sex, per- separates the permissible from the um, prohibited. And the prohibited, uh, let's say going back before uh, the middle of the last century, uh, included the obvious uh, candidates, rape, uh, incest, child molesting, and also another a group of activities, just to cite a few, uh, fornication, um, adultery, sodomy, and promiscuity. A uh, hundred years later, or hundred and fifty years later, we use the same map in the sense that there are two divisions, there are two areas, the prohibited and the permissible. Uh, but we have changed the line because we talk about consulting, consenting adults and no victims. We have put the line now uh, after uh, rape, incest, and child molesting. And the other activities are acceptable, uh, even f- approved and endorsed. Uh, I'm unhappy with both those maps and would like to have a map that has three areas, uh, which would be the area which is, uh, is contrary to civil law, namely criminal, and on the other end of the spectrum the area which is permissible and which is determined by taste what we now call values, which are all personal values, and anyone can have any values. But what we have lost, tragically lost, is that central area, which can still be called, but is almost never called, immoral. Not to be enforced by any government law or regulation, but where our sense of tradition and conscience and the way things ought to be and some sense of an ideal would have sway. And into that area of the immoral might still go those four activities, which these are only samples, which now seem to be so permissible, namely fornication, adultery, sodomy, and promiscuity. That does not mean that that area is subject to intolerance. We are, in fact, very tolerant of it. Intolerance has a genuine role, and we should not forget to be intolerant of rape, incest, and child molesting, I believe. But we should still ask many questions about those other areas, which I think have drifted much too fast. Into the area of mere taste, like picking a nectar. I'll stop there.
1: Um, one of the things that I think is common to what everybody says is that there seems to be a, at least a doubleness in what we are all experiencing. Roger would, perhaps, uh, suggest that there is at least a tripleness, but there is no um, the. the, the The fantasy of unity, the fantasy of of singleness, which I think Catherine alluded to a little bit, is something that is simply not ours anymore. Um, I'd like to know where people's sense of the discontinuities in our experience happen. So for Roger, uh, it might happen along the lines of the immoral, uh, what was immoral, what is now considered immoral, the lines. Uh, so that's something that's changing. That would be slippery, it seems to me. That would be, that would be hard to pin down. That would require a certain doubleness of vision. Um, what kinds of doublenesses, what kinds of shifting terrains do people find most problematic in either public life or in the lives of their writing? Roger, let me pose a question to you. How how would the world be better if those um, did you say fornication
6: adultery? Well, let me pick up your doubleness business. I, there is, I, I have a nice quote. So you we, always we, we can do that. What, what is double? Uh, Lynn Margulis, who has written, uh, who was a biologist, whom some of you may know, who has written one very good book uh, called *The Origins of Sex*, which is a history of from from prokaryotes, which are the most elemental, uh, cellular, -cellular, pre-cellular beings to the present, Uh, a a superb history of the development of sex and what it means. And she has written one very questionable book called The The Mystery Dance, which I would not certify in any way. But the quotation I have from her is that not exactly a a quotation, but she says we have a four-letter slang word for copulation, which means two things, an act of love and an act of aggression. And I don't think I have to say it. F-U may mean an act of love, and it may mean an act of absolute destruction. Now, what what does that mean to us dealing with this question of intolerance in sex. I would like to say that we have come to a place where we neglect much too much the possibility of an ideal. As all the media and advertising fills us with images of uh, s and and incest and adultery as being the, uh, the desirable forms of sex with kicks Uh, even the very word sexy now. Uh, I would like to make a little plea that we, and this is not uh, limited to this culture, that there is a kind of sex that could be, and I mean the sexual act, that could be considered ideal. Very few of us can fulfill it very often, but it has to do with the union, the sexual union of a man and a woman who love each other, and who are committed to each other, and who know what tenderness is, and who feel knowingly that somehow this act has to do with the reproduction of the species, and even maybe trying to have a child. That gets trampled on so often that I think, in answer to your question, I would like to put that plea in as being very important.
1: Uh, And I would like to ask the question, to whom?
6: To whom? (laughs) Well, first of all, to me. And perhaps
1: somebody else. We know uh, to uh, you. But could somebody else, perhaps, um, respond to it? Michael? how do
4: you <laughs> <laughs> first I just want to say the word fuck <laughs> I'm not comfortable with it, I, it it's, a, it's a complicated and debatable word but I'm not comfortable with it as something you can't say on a stage um, I don't know where that leaves me obviously I don't know where that leaves me I, hap- I happen to have fairly bourgeois middle class tastes and I have been with the same man for 11 years, and we do have a monogamous, committed, deeply serious relationship. He is the person who I expect, though you never know, to spend my whole life with, to grow old with, sitting around at rest home telling jokes to, and, um, you know, and and, and die with. If he dies first, I'll be there with him. If I die first, he'll be there with me. And no, of course, I do not accept that relationship and the fact that we fuck as falling under the general category heading of immoral. Of course not. Why would I? The notion of of ideal, I think,
5: is... Problematic, and you know we can see through thousands of uh, repetitions of history in every way, and I don't think that's what you're talking about exactly. But I think it's a it's a danger to to prescribe an ideal and. Um,
6: um, Not prescribe, prescribe merely right. describe. Mm-hmm.
7: Could,
6: I,
2: could I jump in here? Sure. I I. Um, uh, I mean. On the question of homosexual relationships, I I sympathize with Michael's position on this. I mean, I I believe that uh, um, that is uh, the way people are, and a loving relationship between members of the same sex is uh, fine by me, Uh, uh, or even even a non-loving relationship, uh, as many heterosexual relationships are, uh, including a few I've known personally. Uh, but I'm not. Uh, where I think um, I'm, and, and I think that uh, again, I, I recognize uh, what you say about the persistence of uh, prejudice and discrimination uh, and hostile thoughts uh, in the, you know, harbored by many people in the population about uh, about gays and lesbians. Uh, at the same time, I I do feel that things are, are a lot different now than they were even 25 years ago and that uh, uh, on, the, uh, on the question of uh, sexual behavior or the kinds of sexual partnerships that people wish uh, to form, whether monogamous or not monogamous uh, adulterous, uh, uh, straight, gay, whatever, uh, that the society has allowed people to carve out room for themselves so that they can lead uh, sexual lives uh, of their choosing without uh, a kind of prohibit or without a um, decisive interference, either from the state or from uh, the civil society. And I think that that's a good thing. Uh, where I may not agree with you is on whether or not to call certain objections to homosexuality, a kind of intolerance. Um, I mean, I know it certainly comes across as intolerance, and I feel safe to say this because I don't share it. But part of the great American uh, panorama, uh, the diverse panorama, are people with religious convictions uh, that go back for many centuries and even millennia, uh, and who adhere to and abide uh, by those convictions. Uh, they have opinions about adultery, about homosexuality, uh, uh, which I may disagree with, and I don't want them to be able to enact their opinions into law. And yet, I i want to be tolerant in a way of those opinions also. And beyond that, and here I think is where I have sympathy for Rogers' position, I do feel that um, not in the area of loving relationships of what, of any sort, but that in the area of sex, uh, the problem in a, in a lot of ways is not intolerance, it's the absence of tolerance, that uh, we, um, uh, we have gotten ourselves into a lot of difficulty as a society. It costs us things uh, because we we refuse to uphold certain kinds of standards uh, about sexual behavior. Uh, The one example that I, teen sex, uh, the the attitude towards uh, uh, youth sex in the schools, uh, the distribution of condoms, uh, which is a kind of implicit, or maybe not even very implicit, maybe call it an explicit uh, recognition that even if you're 14 or 15 years, years old, it's okay. Uh, for you to have a sexual relationship. I don't think it is okay for a 14- or 15-year-old to have a sexual relationship. I also don't think it's okay for 14- or 15-year-olds to have uh, uh, children. Uh, I, I thought that in a lot of ways Dan Quayle uh, was right. Uh, he, was, he picked the wrong example in, the, in Murphy Brown, a woman who could perfectly well take care uh, of a child even if she was a single mother. Uh, But the the, the plain fact is that single mothers have a lot more difficulty uh, taking care of children and producing responsible citizens uh, than married mothers do. Uh, Married mothers of whatever sort of marriage they might want to have. That isn't the case with all single mothers. There are many single mothers who have to be single mothers. They do a good job. There are single fathers out there too. But I don't think that, I don't believe that uh, it's the same thing. I think that In the ideal situation, children do have two parents. They wait to a certain age before they start having children. Uh, In these areas, I think that we have lost uh, a certain moral fiber and that the elite culture uh, in refusing to adhere to certain values and standards encourages the kind of promiscuity that leads to uh, immoral uh, behavior. I, I agree with Roger about certain kinds of immoral behavior. I don't include homosexual homosexuality in that, Uh, but I do think that there is uh, sexual immorality rampant in the land. The problem is therefore, to me, not one of intolerance, uh, uh, but of too much tolerance.
1: Uh, One of the other doublenesses that I think happens with sex is it will not stay in the envelope of the ideal. Never has, um, never will. Um, even Even if you said you know, I don't think it's great for teenagers to have sex. Uh, I, I doubt whether maybe a few 14-year-olds will leap up and say you're crazy, but most of, most of us uh, feel at least vexed about teenagers having sex. Throughout the history of the world, teenagers have had sex. Even if, you believe, even if you believe that teenagers shouldn't have sex, what would you do about it? And does not having condoms in the school Make teenagers not having sex. My question to both of you is: How would these standards or ideals that
3: you espouse make a better world? Catherine, I just want to interrupt in, in bringing this around to your asking about doubleness. I mean, I think that there's always been, obviously, there's always been teenagers who've had sex, and there's always been a great amount of sexual diversity. One of the questions is between covert and overt. What we overtly accept or decide that we'll tolerate as a society and what we have covertly allowed throughout history because it's part of human nature. Uh, Obviously, distributing condoms to teenagers is, uh, is moving that issue of teen sex from what was covertly admitted, or not tolerated, but understood to exist, into the overt area of what we embrace, because we have a sort of there's a sort of pressure to acknowledge and talk about. I mean, one of the one of the big issues about sex is what can we talk about and what can't we talk about? Because all of it's always existed. It's just how when did it start to exist as part of public discourse and public concern? And where is another shifting boundary line, of course, is private, where what's private? What is part of a private life that is not up for discussion? And that line is certainly shifting a great deal.
1: Um,
6: may, I, may I say something, Mary? Don't we... Yes. Uh, I feel that I should. Uh, say a little something about uh, my feeling that in, saying, in using the word immoral, I am not trying to be intolerant. And uh, th- there's an anecdote, as uh, Michael produced some anecdotes, I will say that uh, uh, members of my family and some of my closest friends are, as, are, are homosexuals in a way that I respect profoundly as I would respect the relationship that you described. And uh, for many years, until our children grew up, the uh, if this makes any difference, um, the trustee for our wills was our closest friend who was homosexual. Uh, in other words, the, the, the feeling that there is something that I cannot endorse does not prevent me in an artistic world and my, and my wife who was in the ballet world from having among, among our closest friends uh, people that are gay. Uh, there is also the, uh, the fact that I, uh, into the same category, I put uh, adultery and lying. Uh, please don't interpret that as meaning that I can, I'm free of all these, uh, uh, not crimes, but immoral acts that I'm talking about. Uh, on the contrary, but I think that if we just assume that anyone's adultery or anyone's lying is perfectly all right because it's no longer illegal, and that there is no other category into which to put it, is going to cripple us morally, if you have any desire to have the adjective moral remain. And
1: may I ask why? Ask why? Yeah.
6: Why it will cripple us? Mm-hmm. Well, because I do attach value to the idea that there are limits to human behavior. Uh, we live in an area in a time, in an era of uh, liberation. We feel that we must be liberated from everything, uh, and that this will uh, bring us some kind of true happiness. Uh, it was a, Believe Locke, who said, "Without law, there is no freedom," which is what I call the paradox of freedom. Uh, if there is no constraint, if there is no limit, no law, what we have is not freedom, but anarchy and chaos, which leads directly into tyranny, which is the opposite of freedom. We have the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution to dis- to. Uh, demonstrate that to us. Uh, So what I'm saying is that the pure operation of civil law is probably not enough in the complicated situation where we find ourselves today to allow us to imply not enforceable but voluntary limits upon ourselves.
3: But isn't isn't the decision of what's moral and immoral very personal and very individual, so that it's difficult to make broad prescriptions that can apply because obviously your category of what may be moral or immoral is not going to be identical to Carol's or to Michael's or to mine. So part of
6: <laughs> Well, that's why we have this kind of meeting. That's you're describing what I call values. Morality is something far more public and social discussed on an occasion like this, and something Say. that we try to work out, something that we try to work out so that we can bring up our children in an intelligent way. Uh, I, well,
1: um, I'd like to bring the, Catherine's question of public and private back to yours for a moment and, and to yours. One of the ways in which what we call morals came into being in, in this world was connected to institutions. Institutions which which functioned because they had sanctions behind them in the real world. What institution, in a world, if you subtract civil law from your um, sanction-bearing entity, what institution and what sanctions would you propose as a viable postmodern way of making the immoral a broader social, public, useful category?
6: You're asking me? Mm. Well, we have one very important and existing uh, institution, which I do not really belong to because I'm a uh, born again agnostic. But that's the church, and I will not sneer in any way at the many, many churches that exist across this country, and I occasionally attend the churches in the little town where I live, the church, the one church because I feel that it is making a genuine contribution to the community in social terms, and it is not because it is extending immorality. I'm sorry, that's not what I'm trying to uh, uh, get across here, but because I think it does stand for a, in this case, a profound Christian sense of charity and of love for other people. Uh, The institution which I feel is failing to do this is the universities and the colleges, where to, to say the kind of thing that I've been saying tonight, uh, is not looked upon with uh, great glee. And um, maybe it shouldn't be. But I think that the my own feeling about the colleges and universities is that they are not there to preach revolution and. Uh, overthrow this society, but try to define its most stable values, its most stable principles, political and moral and racial and everything else, and to try to pass them on to the next generation. And with that, the capacity to criticize, to, to see through what is flimsy and what is hypocritical.
5: I would disagree that that's not going on in our universities, having spent the last, I don't know, eight years at Columbia and now Brown. Um, I I do think that um, it's easy to dismiss, you know, uh, university educations, and I hear about it all the time as um, closed-minded and left-wing and subversive and all sorts of things. But that has not been my experience at all, and I feel that... um, the sort of, it's very complicated everything we're talking about here, and these assumptions are constantly challenged in my classroom at any rate, and I happen to sit in on lots of classes because I like to be a student, and so I see, you know, um, I I see that this, this, there is a genuine dialogue, and I think all of us up here are writers, and so we have a great love of structure, and it's another way to talk about law, but I think, how to define those structures, how to how to make flexible workable ones for our world now is part of what that dialogue in every university, you know, small and large and, and less good and great, um, is actually still happening, to my mind at any rate.
1: I uh, am a believer and I am a uh practicing Catholic, and boy, do I not want them telling me how to behave sexually. Nor do I particularly want uh, a little Baptist church which thinks that uh, Jews um, are people that you really better watch out for because they might have horns, and and Muslims have even bigger horns. Um, I think you can't be monolithic or romantic. There's nothing more romantic, nobody is more romantic about religion than an agnostic. And. Uh,
6: <laughs> Touche. <laughs>
1: if you have been, been brought up under the, uh, the uh, capacious and occasionally smothering cloak of the only church that begins with a capital C, I think you might be a little bit more gingerly about your granting of, of power and sanction to churches. They are not, I, they don't have, I think if you look at history, a fantastic record for tolerance or even for the spreading of morality. I think that's an excessively romantic look at both religion and history. Um, I'd like to, um, I'd also like to ask you one question, Roger. What great work of literature would ever have fulfilled your ideal? I mean, if you include procreation and successful conception as part of it.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. uh,
1: There's a lot of adultery.
6: Literature, I'm I'm delighted to to talk about literature, And, and for some reason, I think some perverse reason, Dostoevsky strikes me, and uh, Dostoevsky is absolutely unafraid. is willing is willing to deal with every political and personal, and religious, and sexual question. Uh, And I am, I have been impressed. I'm, it's, I don't teach Russian literature. I teach French literature. But, but uh, in Dostoevsky, if you look at, the, at uh, Svidrigailov, I think it is, in, in uh, uh, Crime and Punishment, and uh, Stavrogin in The Possessed, there are two child molesters. And for Dostoevsky, this is the worst thing that can exist. He isn't de- depicted as practicing this, but he dreams of the face of a young girl uh, and is revolted and then goes out and commits suicide, so he almost redeems himself. And then Stavrogin's scene, about which I've had bad dreams. I, I, I don't know why I bring this up, but it seems to me that, that literature is able to convey to us a sense of what we cannot do, what is beyond the human. Uh, that sometimes goes beyond what is able to be done in the daily press, in spite of uh, Mr. Bernstein here, who is, uh, uh, doesn't write that kind of daily press. But I th- th- I would just put Dostoevsky forward as, as a person to whom I owe a lot in the sense of what... what I use the word moral. Uh, today you shouldn't use that. Uh, Ethics is money and morals is sex is the way of defining those two words. But that doesn't make too much difference. I am willing to use the word moral because I think it's necessary for us to think along those lines. And Dostoevsky helps us.
1: I'm actually thinking in in literary and formal terms. I want a great work of literature which provides us with a couple who lives happily, wants to make a baby, no fertility problems, I wonder, even in literary terms, if your ideal is a fecundating one.
6: It makes bad literature. Mm-mm. You don't write books about angels. Mary, well, uh, yeah, question for the moderator,
2: because um, I, I, I think I know what you mean about or, about religion, and uh, you know, as a Jew, uh, it's hard for me to have enormous affection for uh, the organized church over the centuries. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you on the one hand uh, deliver a st- stirring denunciation of religion following upon your uh, declaration of being a practicing Catholic so I'm kind of wondering given your feelings about religion why you are a practicing Catholic. It's, it's far from the subject of intolerance and in sex but
1: maybe
7: uh, you could a clear that up.
1: Catholic. I'm not uh, a practicing Catholic. I'm not a baby. Um, I'm a postmodernist, as we all are and so this doubleness trebleness, complexity of vision, is the broth in which we all stew. Um, Whether we like it or not, there is no going back. Um, I refuse not to be a Catholic because I don't agree with some men in the Vatican. I refuse to define Catholicism (laughs) as what those men in the Vatican say, Catholicism. It's, It's too good for them. And I won't let them have it. Okay. That's why.
2: Uh, I, mean, I suppose that the only thing worse than a world in which there's too much religion is a world in which there isn't any at all. It uh, <laughs> does have a useful purpose. No. <laughs> you no, know, you know, I think it does. I mean, it's obviously satisfied a uh, deep human need for many, many centuries and continues to do <laughs> so for many millions of people. Um, It doesn't have a useful
1: purpose any more than art has a useful purpose. It's something more profound than use, I would argue. Mm
2: -hmm. Anyway, it's it's uh, (laughs) it's far from the subject. Anyway, I agree about
1: that.
3: I was just thinking of Flannery O'Connor, and of course, the Catholic Church is as I mean, I'm a Catholic. It's completely irrational. It's helpless. It's not useful to me at all. (laughs) I, I.
1: can we go back to literature? Um, do we uh, and and to sex? Do we agree that um, <laughs> we could talk about the Catholic Church? I'm sort of bored with it. But um, does literature? Uh, do we agree, first of all, that censorship is over,
3: Catherine? To a certain extent, I mean, there's a, I think that there's a certain There's a censorship that happens in the marketplace. Uh, I'm thinking of a situation in which there was a, I'm not going to give the title and all the particulars, but there's a short story accepted for publication by a major national magazine. And it had a title that was considered offensive by advertisers, which means that they threatened to pull ads from the magazine. The magazine made ads. The magazine asked the writer to change the title. The writer refused. The story wasn't published. Uh, that's not—is that censorship? It's a kind of—it comes close to censorship. Richard, is that censor. censorship?
2: <coughs> yeah, I'm—I'm um, I'm willing to think that it's censorship, and yet even so, um, I, I do think that the—in uh, an imperfect world, uh, uh, it, you know it. It might also, you know, advertisers, I suppose, uh, you know, have the right, as it were, to uh, uh, be associated with with a kind of publication that they think will advance their uh, business interests, and then it's up to the magazine uh, whether to ignore those uh, that pressure or not, and then the magazine voluntarily uh, decided not to publish the story. It's it's a disturbing story, but your story is a disturbing story. But I'm not willing to think that it's. Censorship, at least not in the in the in the old-fashioned uh, and important uh, sense of censorship, there I I think that the battle basically has been won. It you know it continues to be fought in some I mean I, you know in some districts I you know I I still read the stories about Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn and stuff like that uh, you know being removed from libraries by the uh, you know uh, <clears throat> guardians of uh, literary and public morality. But I, I, I have the sense, uh, maybe, maybe my sense is distorted by living in New York, uh, where that kind of thing doesn't seem to happen very much. Uh, and maybe I'd have a slightly different sense of it if I lived in Oklahoma or Texas or some other benighted part of the world. But um, basically, I think that, again, uh, it, whatever censorship exists, it's uh, less than ever before and a pretty minor problem. Just, just quickly, you know, Chrysler also successfully
4: um, pressured Esquire into dropping a David Levitt story that was in galleys, all set to go, and it just didn't, it just didn't go well with, with Chrysler's. And they, and they dropped it. The fiction
2: editor resigned yeah. as a result. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's not <coughs> much people. I, I mean, you yeah, know, there's some, could I just, excuse me, if I just, yeah, you know, sorry. somebody, somebody. I think it was AJ Liebling, said, you know, that if you want to really have a free press, uh, you know, go out and buy one. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my boss, Arthur Salzberger Jr., you know, he enjoys the free press because he owns the place. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there are people will refuse to publish things for, for various reasons. Uh, we may agree or disagree with those uh, reasons, but I, but I still don't think that, aside from these annoying individual examples, that censorship is exactly a pressing national concern.
5: Yeah, I don't think censorship as defined in the old ways, maybe, but um, that there is so much, for instance. At the university, what is allowed into a canon and what's not? What is read? What is not? What is taught? What is real literature? What is you know not literature? All of those things um, speak to you know the the more ambiguous and odd moment that we find ourselves in. I also think, again, not to harp on this, but the the notion of self-censorship—what we do to ourselves as a result of the. Um, The uh, concerns of the marketplace, of the society, et cetera, as writers is a huge. I mean, I think that um, the different kinds of oppressions um, for. Every every group really are so subtle and therefore so efficient and so um, Hard to sort of sort out that yeah, we can sit here and say there's no censorship And it's no big deal, but it's huge on lots of you know smaller more
1: insidious levels. I think Michael you're you're nodding have you experienced this if you have what kind of uh, censorship or self-censorship?
4: Oh, I don't know if I can be very articulate about this. I was, I was, um, I, was I was, I was nodding, especially over what Carol was saying about about self censorship and, and the sort of um, pervasive sense of, of what will what will be received, what will be considered real literature. And you try not to worry about that. You can't worry about that stuff. And, and yet, yet it's like trying to jump in a lake and not get wet. You know, it, it, good luck. Um, Though so I don't know if that hasn't always been true to some extent or another. You know, but writer, writers always want to sell and be, be taken seriously and, and, and live forever, you know, we all do. Um, so we, I think we're just, we're just, we just absorb the zeitgeist and it, 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 it inevitably is reflected in what we write. How could it not be?
2: What if you brought a uh, anti-Semitic you know, publication to your publisher or a uh, homophobic screenplay to uh, DreamWorks? Uh, or, um, uh, you know, an overtly uh, misogynist uh, play to a Broadway producer, a you would hit. never there, get there, <laughs> there, There's that. many on Broadway right you'd now. You'd never get it on. Uh, you'd make a million people I all think, it. the time. Uh, is, that, is that censorship? <laughs>
4: Broadway is full of the
5: misogynistic homophobic you plays. Hmm? You, you didn't finish What Happens? When she bring a well, my assumption is, i mean,
2: disagreement with Mary here about. She thinks it would be a big hit. I think it would never be produced. Um, I and, have two uh,
1: words, David Mamet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well,
2: that's. I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to quote <laughs> David Mamet back to you, but I'm too polite. Uh, uh, what? Um, what would? Uh, I just don't think that. Uh, uh, I'm talking about a, uh, you might think that David Mamet is misogynist. I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I'm not a big fan of David Mamet, by the way, but I don't agree with that. I, at the very least, it would be ambiguously so. I'm talking about sort of an unambiguous uh, kind of thing, something that you know represented the prevalent attitudes of, the, of earlier in the century or the 19th century, things that were produced all the time, uh, birth of a nation. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you couldn't get those things on the screen, or you couldn't get Alfred Knopf, or Random House, or Simon and Schuster to publish that kind of thing anymore. Is that censorship?
1: Is it? Roger, how do you
6: feel about that? Well, I'm worried about this use of the word censorship. If, If you want to sell a book now, the best thing to do for it is to have it censored. And then it'll be a bestseller. And therefore, I think we're in a very ambiguous situation, using the word. We can go back to that, what I call the uh, the Mapplethorpe show. I, if coming from Vermont, I know the difference between an apple and a maple. But uh, that, that was called censorship, whereas the person who ran to that show in Washington had never seen it before, and made what I would call a curatorial decision, that these were inappropriate works for her gallery and this thing exploded as censorship. And there are many publishers who would love to have their books censored in some way. If someone would only come out and condemn them, this society then will welcome that book. Not in the case probably of an anti-Semitic book, but there there are still people publishing books denying the Holocaust. I mean, this still goes on. These books are published. It is possible to do so. I don't think censorship is our problem mm-hmm. even with the canon? People are discussing the canon right and left, but I know of no such thing as censorship. No, I don't. Of, of, of the canon.
5: No, yeah. I think that you know it's a different notion of censorship in terms of a larger, less clearly <clears throat>
8: defined.
6: Notion. Cens- censorship is not over, but I think it's driven so far into a corner that right now it's not the major problem. I don't know what the major problem is. I think one of them is uh, is this little word sex. <laughs> Why, uh, in, this, in the title of this program and in many, many other places, sex is treated as if it's something which could be isolated from everything else. That we can have sex without, and then you know, everything else falls away, um, without a partner, uh, without love, without uh, some kind of commitment. Uh, I attribute a lot of this uh, to Kinsey whom we have now seen through. Uh, Unlike unlike some people here, I was uh, a young man in 1948 when, what is it, human male behavior, male sexual behavior, whatever it was called. That book in 1948 was welcomed uh, as a major scientific liberating force in the culture. And it had a great deal to do with the way this culture has gone, with Supreme Court decisions, namely the Roth and then the Miller case. And I think why we're sitting here tonight. We now know that Kinsey was not scientific at all and had a program that he was trying to sell in that book. And I, it's worth I don't know how much it may, but Kinsey was just talking about sex. There are no, he was talking about sex, sexual activity of males. He never talks about a woman in the book. He never talks about love, and he never talks about reproduction. These are all isolated acts. He principally counts orgasms, and that's the way sex is described. Now, that is not faithful to the way life is. (laughs) <laughs> I think we
1: have uh, some, oh, some eager people in the audience. So why don't we um, open it up. Now, I believe there's a microphone. And I wish that you would find it, because I have no idea <laughs> right where there. it is. Can you see? I'm sorry, where is it? OK. So if you have a question, would you uh, come to the mic?
9: Yeah, I'm a little troubled by by certain levels of misinformation. Um, first, to speak of the Maplethorpe decision as, as not as a curatorial decision, it's, it's preposterous. It was not a curatorial decision, um, and you know it was clearly a decision that was made from censorious for censorious reasons. But be that as it may, um, it's a little strange to me to listen to six people kind of glibly say, in a kind of New York provincialism, that, that censorship is not an issue. Um, I would refer you to publications like VartSave Save from People of the American Way. Censorship is a constant issue in this country. Um,
6: What's that, Art Save? Art Save,
9: which is a project of uh, People for the American Way. Um, uh, <clears throat> I mean, this does happen throughout the country. Books are yanked out of libraries, are not purchased by libraries. Um, uh, art, art shows are closed down constantly. Censorship is a constant. I mean, there is a relative issue, in, and I think Mr. Uh, Bernstein's point is true that it's we have to think of these in some relative terms and that yes uh, something like uh, a DW Griffiths film would not be accepted in the way it was and then of course what did he follow it with? He followed it with the film Intolerance, you know, so I mean there's that issue, but I I, I do feel like you haven't addressed some of the issues of, of censorship as a real issue and I think some of the uh, it's just expressed tonight, in terms of using homosexuality as sort of the benchmark of a certain kind of immorality uh, leads to a, a lack of specificity between the difference between values. I think uh, Car- uh, Carol Meso talked about this, and I'd like you to get back to how values and, and ethics f- are, are flexed within a culture, and that that is part of a, an institution of higher learning. <laughs> such as we're in right now, to talk about how those values do change and what are really underneath those values. And and Michael's point about a a loving relationship, if we're going to be on these sort of Empyrean heights of of loving relationship, why is this suddenly getting separated through a sexual act? You know, and I'd like that to be sort of torn into a bit more.
4: Oh well, I have a—I have just a, a couple things to say. Um, first, of all, I want thank, to thank—thank you for sort of further emphasizing the whole—the whole question of, of censorship. I had, um, oh, of course, one's fear about being on a panel is that one will be a glib provincial New Yorker. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a—it's a huge thing, and it would—it was—it was my impression that we—if that wasn't sufficiently acknowledged up here, I—I I apologize. Yes, it's a huge pernicious thing that's going on in, in in many quarters, on many levels. Um, and somewhat more complicatedly, um, you know, I, I feel, especially in this area, only, only privileged to talk from my own experience, which happens to be, as I said, pretty bourgeois. Um, so I find myself defending my, my life, my deep sense of my own morality in terms of my life, which, which is a which is pretty standard issue, you know, in terms of what, how, most people's, how many people's lives are. I have this guy, I live with him, you know, we're, we're, like, we're like married. Um, do I think that, that, that gay men and lesbians who don't have such standard arrangements are somehow in some different category, are somehow less moral? Absolutely not, absolutely not. And fuck anybody who says differently. Carol, did you want to...? (laughs) (laughs) Exhibiting. Um, um, I think,
5: uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad... I think those of us who are uh, not only writers but in this position of educator and I hate being on the stage and I, I don't believe that I have something to tell my students and they must listen to me I mean I think the dynamic in every way is shifting you know the 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 Everything is opening up. Everything needs to be challenged and thought about. And the assumptions: what is what is moral? What is good and what is bad? What is right and what is wrong? What have we inherited? Where have we inherited it from? Why have we bought into whatever it is? These are the questions to ask. And and to my mind, in my writing class, what I ask is: where did we get our notion of a sentence? What is a paragraph? Why have we bought into this is what a novel should be? What is a book? But, and I think that speaks to values in the same kinds of ways. And if each of us, in, in certain ways, in whatever aspects, um, in all aspects of our life, sort of start entering questioning on that level in that way, I think um, Things do actually start to slowly evolve and change, and the answers are different for everyone, or there are no answers. But the questions are, you know, deeply important. And um, mm. and um, you know, <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. <laughs>
2: well, first of all, I, I guess I just disagree on this censorship question. Um, uh, maybe with Michael also. Uh, <clears throat> And I would certainly make a distinction between censorship that has the sanction of government and the police behind it, and the censorship that comes from uh, people um, who have different beliefs and different values, uh, expressing their opinions and trying to have uh, uh, their opinions prevail um, in, in a community. I don't like it when people try to, when religious groups, for example, try to uh, ban uh, Catcher in the Rye from the local library, but I do put that into a different uh, category than uh, the government uh, telling us what we can write and what we can read, and certainly in that sense, I think that censorship has disappeared completely. I, I would I would just like to make a, a different kind of point, though, because I, again, I, I, I uh, feel that sort of another side of intolerance is, is being ignored here. I mean, it's true that there is the old-fashioned sort of intolerance, and, and I think that Michael's experiences and the use of homosexuality as a, as a benchmark for the existence of, of intolerance is, is, is valid, and I, and I agree with that analysis. But I think that society has become so incredibly complicated and contradictory and paradoxical uh, in this way that just as there is intolerance of homosexuality, uh, there's also intolerance of uh, people who don't want, who don't say the right thing about homosexuality. I mean we all know or maybe we don't all know uh, about sort of gay genes day uh, that takes place on campuses uh, across the country where, you know, if, you're, if you believe in gay and lesbian rights and human freedom, you wear jeans that day. Uh, that uh, yeah, you don't know about that? Well, yeah, I happen we're, to. We're University now. of Pennsylvania, for example, this place. I remember visiting the head of the women's office at the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, in other words, uh, I'm all in favor of, of gay and lesbian rights, but I don't want anybody forcing me to uh, express an opinion on that subject, especially not their opinion uh, on that subject. Uh, At the University of Pennsylvania, that provoked, by the way, uh, a counter-reaction, a a kind of satirical uh, reaction, uh, where a group of students uh, created uh, heterosexual footwear day. They said that if you believe in heterosexual rights and human freedom, you'll wear shoes uh, that day, and if you don't wear shoes, and those students were were accused of uh, homophobia according to the university's uh, uh, harassment standard. So on the one hand, the faculty can force students to express themselves by wearing or not wearing jeans about homosexuality. Wait a minute, on I'm the really other hand, when well, in I, I haven't finished, the word, Mary.
1: Force, though.
2: Well, th- because if you if you if the uni if the administration of the university uh, puts out the word to all of the RAs and to all of the uh, administration that on such and such a day w- this will be Gay Jeans Day. And those people who wear jeans will express their support of gay rights, and those people who don't, and, and human freedom. I'm quoting from the document. And then there was a required meeting after the day from all resident advisors to uh, to discuss what came up. People are put into a situation of intense social pressure, where they have to take a position, whether they want to or not. Another example, also drawn from the University of Pennsylvania, which is a place that I happen to know a little bit about. I hope that it's coming across. Uh, I visited the uh, women's office there. Now, the women's office is not the women's studies department. The women's office is the office that is created by Penn, to, since it's been a co-educational institution, to uh, deal with problems that women might have. You walk into the office, and the director of uh, uh, of the office receives me for an interview. I'm a journalist writing a story about this university. And uh, the first thing I see is uh, actually a kind of anti-PC, a non-PC statement right now, but it says, uh, uh, woman by birth, lesbian by choice. Big sign, you know, the first thing you see when you walk into her office. And then underneath it, just a sign, a, a big banner that said, lesismos. And I wondered why did, uh, I didn't want to ask her about her own sexual preference, but I wondered why at the women's office did there have to be uh, banners uh, uh, either for or against uh, uh, lesbianism. Right? But we got into the subject of, uh, of um, uh, choice versus uh, life, uh, or as it's put, on abortion. And she says, well, or it came up as this, she had told somebody had come in for some information about uh, pro-life groups on campus, and she received the answer that this office is a pro-choice office. And so I said, why is it necessary for a a department, branch of the administration of the University of Pennsylvania to have an official position on on abortion? What about women who are uh, Orthodox Jewish women, for example, who believe uh, that abortion is the equivalent of murder? It's not my view. Uh, but there are, there are those people. Are, are, are those women are not welcome at your office?" And so the answer of the woman was, the, was an absolute classic. She said, well, actually, pro-choice is the middle position on that issue uh, because if you take uh, the anti, uh, the pro-life position is that nobody should have an abortion. The opposite of that is that everybody should have an abortion, and therefore our position at the University of Pennsylvania is the middle position. So I mean, I do believe that a certain kind of liberal orthodoxy uh, has a uh, strong uh, position on a lot of campuses and in a lot of areas of life. And that it represents a kind of intolerance on the other side.
7: Could we
2: take at least a second question from
10: the audience? Thank you. Yes, sorry. Hi, my name is Joan Nestle. And I've spent a lot of years writing what some call lesbian pornography and what some call lesbian erotica. And I just um, two things I want to say. First, I think you all have proved to me, without a doubt, that you can talk about sex without talking about class and race, because I think that was another subtext running throughout this. But the other thing I want to say, I was a keynote speaker at the SUNY New Paltz Women on Sex Conference. And I'm sitting, I sat here and listened to you, and I thought about that conference that was police that had been terrorized the night before by Pataki and Americans for Concerned Society. And this is primarily a working class college. And I'm thinking about what is happening when in fact um, private universities have the privilege in their own way, which I must say was sadly enlightening to me, to talk about sex. Whereas public universities are being policed and are being watched. And I guess this is a plea to all of you. You have the privilege to sit here and to talk about this um, matter in your unique ways. But keep an eye on what is happening to working class communities that perhaps need, and I can see why, the integrity and excitement of the new thought more than anything. And they are the policed college communities. They are the ones who actually risk talking about sex in the, in the sense that sex becomes almost performative in some ways, not, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was, and the fact that it was women talking about sex that um, Gimbal called moving as far from the natural as possible, I, I'm, a lot of this may be coming out um, garbled up, but I must say I'm really distressed at what I heard tonight.
6: In what sense were you policed?
10: Um, When Pataki's office heard that there was going to be a conference, and this was all in the papers, but you may be from another place, um, that there was going to be a conference on women and sexuality, and there was going to be discussion of lesbianism, and there was going to be discussion of S&M, and in fact there was going to be discussion of sex toys, among other things, Um, a group of representatives of Americans for a moral society had got in touch with the president, And this sort of escalated into having a contingent at this conference, in which, as I said, it was um, myself and two other very um, well-known women in their fields to do a keynote speech. Sitting right in front of us was a member of the SUNY Board of Trustees. There were members from Pataki's office that had been sent down to. Police is the way, to to, uh, perform surveillance is the way, to really keep this conference under their eyes. And what they literally did, there was around 10 of them, they sat and they took notes during the whole thing. They never entered into dialogue. But afterwards, basically, there was this whole campaign to keep this kind of speech from a publicly funded university or college. Yes, right. yes. I mean, and th- you know who saved it really were right. the students. Right. The students, gay, straight, and every other kind, organized and said, We're not going to have this. But right. all I want to draw to your attention is you are in privileged positions. And th- what I am in fear of is that we will have discourse in this country. And the privileged discourse will be for the upper classes to talk about whatever you want to talk about, because nobody really cares. But <laughs> well, what's going to happen? in the places of working class people, people who need ideas perhaps in a different way, and that you really have a responsibility to make sure that the same privilege you have, and that I sometimes, and I'm sorry, but don't feel is enacted too well, to discuss ideas is also protected for students and teachers and people who care about change in less privileged places.
5: Joan, I've taught, I've taught at uh, state universities. I was at Illinois State, and I know very, very much the case you're talking about and what happened there, and do you feel that there's not that interchange of ideas? I mean, this seemed to be the Pataki and the state coming in, and, you know, and it seemed that the students rallied to the cause, and the faculty as well. Um, Do you feel that there's not that happening? No,
10: it it happened there. And it was the most wonderful educational experience for the students. Right, absolutely. But what I was getting on email when I was Amy Kesselman, who was head of the women's department who had called this conference into being, um, was saying to me that this is happening across the country in terms of public citizens saying, we can't let our, quote, children hear about these things, and you're getting public money from us. You see, right. that's the difference. Right. They can always say, don't use taxpayers' money to talk about sex. Right. And you should keep an eye on that. How
6: right. many people did you have on the program which did, who not, did not subscribe okay. to your your tenants? Was it really an open discussion, in other words? I wasn't there. I'm, this is a genuine question.
10: No, I, it was, um, the subject of the conference was, Women and sexuality. So it, there were many different viewpoints. For instance, on the keynote panel that I was speaking, Roz Pachewski, who's an internationally known scholar in, re, in reproductive rights, there was a woman who was talking about Latina um, women's health issues, and myself, who's the co founder of Lesbian Herstory Archives, talking about the history of lesbian sexuality. And there was a discussion. But you know what? We didn't even have time to talk because the president was on such a defensive with this group sitting in front of him that he, took, he spent a half hour giving a First Amendment speech about why he had a right to have this conference. So there are many ways to, to have censorship. One of them is to make speakers so frightened and so apologetic and so defensive about what they have to say that they don't say it.
1: Uh, I just have to say, I have the odd situation of being a New Pauls faculty wife. <laughs> And um, the kind of pressure that has been exerted on that campus uh, that is continuing to be brought uh, on, because people are really afraid of having their funding cut, has had an enormously chilling effect on what people think can be taught, can be spoken about on, on all sorts of conferences. Again, we're talking about public funding in the same way that, right. that we were talking before. And it's, and it, and it's a very important issue. Yes. I think you were next. Uh,
9: one solution to uh, sexual censorship issues or problems might be to uh, not vote for Pataki, but that's another—that's a no-brainer. Um, one issue that has uh, not come up tonight is the issue of prostitution. And uh, i like to know what some of the people on the panel think about prostitutes, both male, female, uh, homosexual and heterosexual, and also whether uh, they believe, if anyone believes, that the profession is, uh, is a moral one or is not moral.
6: Well, I suppose the tale of that is addressed to me, and, and uh, I think it's immoral but I'd like many things, many kinds of behavior, it is always with us. Uh, I, have, I have included in this uh, large category of immoral lying and adultery, and we will never wipe them out, but I don't think they are to be uh, endorsed and accepted Uh I don't think—I mean, I don't—I've never thought this through, but I believe that it would be a better world if we could do without prostitution. But I have no illusions that that's going to happen.
1: Yes.
8: Next. I don't have a question. I have a statement to address to Mr. Shattuck. Um, one of the um, one can't help but detect that some of the intolerances in this room is directed towards you and what you have to say, and it's a great shame because you are. I'm a great admirer of yours, and you're a very serious writer, and I think your eloquent regret is much needed. Um, It's hard to be romantic at the end of the 20th century and have some idealism, but you shoot yourself in the foot in two ways. One is um, (laughs) you included sodomy, I presume you mean homosexuality, in your list of immorality, and then you brought up A scientist, Lynn Margolis, who I had the great misfortune of having to listen to a couple of years ago, who is very near to being a complete biological quack. And uh, you sort of try and link prokaryotes onto eukaryotes to make some sort of biological claim for tenderness when it comes to the union between a man and a woman. Misguided in terms of science and morally misguided. And second, you you bring up Dostoevsky as an example of um, a writer. I'm not quite sure what you were saying. I mean, I think Nabokov said it it best when he said, you know, here's somebody trying to turn, you know, this awful sinning your way towards Jesus, turning um, all of Russia into a monastery with this didactic morality in his literature. And given your other professed taste in literature. I'm just surprised. So your seriousness and your desire for idealism and romanticism and, some, and bring sex back into line with love is all very well understood, but you're going to just be met with intolerance if you wed that with almost fetishizing of your own morality and bringing science in, in a way that is misguided, frankly. <coughs> Thank you.
1: Would you like to respond? <laughs>
6: The word I retain from that is tenderness. Uh, tenderness does not come from Lynn Margulis, who, whose best book has nothing to do with it. It is a very scientific book about the emergence of uh, what she calls sex, which is a means of reproduction, uh, and what difference it makes to us. Uh, tenderness comes from elsewhere and it is, not, it is not, she is not particularly in favor of um, monogamous relationships and she is even willing to, to tolerate something that we have not mentioned this evening, which is a complete separation of sex from everything else, of reproduction from everything else, namely cloning. Cloning is the uh, is the final cleavage between uh, the reproductive act and the result of reproduction. We can do it by other means, therefore sex will be split off and become another activity, and she has indeed some very quackish remarks to make about that. Uh, I'm not trying, I hope, to privilege my own morality. The morality that I mentioned is a traditional morality that comes from religion, from tradition, from common sense. And um, it does not call for intolerance. It calls for understanding and discussion and serious questioning of what we should be doing with ourselves and our lives. And this large question, which covers everything we do in life, of education, the education that our children Receive from everything we do.
1: May I just ask you a couple of questions? What religion? What tradition? And what is common sense?
6: <laughs> I don't think you want me to take up that much time, do you? I
1: would, I would ask us to to question the solidity. Um, I, I wanted to well, talk about slippage if, uh, and doubleness.
6: The um, the areas that I that have been removed from criminality, and I would place in immorality, come from uh, particularly the religion, which I don't profess and don't entirely admire, of Islam. But it also belongs to the Western tradition, to what we call the <coughs> Judeo-Christian tradition, and is very much founded not in religion, but in Greek culture. Uh, and what religion, what uh,
1: Tradition.
6: What tradition? Well, there is a... What is it called? I've never known how to pronounce it. There's a Latin word they use in the law. Stare decisis, I think it is, which means you accept the... Uh, you accept previous decisions in law. This is the common law tradition and that until very persuasive reasons and circumstances have arisen to persuade you differently, that you take the traditional law. And this is in general, I think, uh, fairly sound and fairly close to the other question you asked of common sense. No one knows what common sense is. It's something like a, uh, a, uh, a consensus among of what we would like to think of as straight-thinking people, but there's no way of identifying it. It is just a phrase. It is not encoded anywhere, and it certainly is not encoded in my mind alone. But as Descartes said in his uh, first sentence, the one thing that everybody thinks he is fully equipped with is common sense. Uh, This does not, uh, to the last questioner, uh, you, you trouble me. And I will think about it, but I hope that what I've said will trouble you too.
1: Yes. I yeah, have
7: a quick question for Mr. Bernstein. In your opening remarks, you said that the one area where you see an increasing intolerance is of male heterosexual desire, and you cited the example of the of the sergeant in the military who now faces court-martial in 57 some odd years in jail, but you know, it's a very odd example of to pick because I mean the entire military structure has allowed male heterosexual desire to flourish, in turning the Manila into an international brothel and turning Bangkok into an international brothel, without any reservation. And moreover, the one example where a woman did transgress sexual boundaries, she lost her job as a pilot. I'm wondering if you might try and reconcile your observation about. Male, uh, male heterosexual desire being policed or being grown intolerant of with those examples?
2: Well, I think that I, I could have chosen many examples. That happens to be the one that's in the paper and that of concern to me now. Uh, the other recent one that took place in the military was uh, the guy, the other staff sergeant who got 25 years for a category of offense that the uh, prosecution had to call constructive force uh, in order to justify a charge of rape. When the testimony indicated that the uh, that the sex was consensual, I'm not arguing here. Uh, by the way, I'm not a. Uh, I don't feel that I have to defend uh, the military culture. Uh, uh, I don't agree with you, by the way. About uh, I spent a lot of time in the Philippines and in Thailand in my Asia days, and it isn't the U.S. military that turned Bangkok into a big brothel. First of all, Bangkok is not a big brothel. Uh, it's a big city that has a lot of uh, sex for sale in it. It still does, and uh, there's no U.S. military there, uh, so just a small point of disagreement on that subject. Uh, but certainly, yes, wherever there are military, there is uh, homo- uh, there is um, homosexuality and also uh, <laughs> pros- and also prostitution. Not in this, not not the same category of behavior. Uh, I think that for a man who, uh, I mean, you just have to look at the charges uh, that the guy is accused of, and uh, uh, not even of, uh, of forcing himself on women. He's accused of adultery. Uh, there's one, one charge, uh, one, one of the charges against him is a woman who testifies that she grabbed him by the shoulders. I'm um, sorry, grabbed her by the shoulders. I have it written down here someplace grabbed her by the shoulders, pulled her toward him, and asked her if she wanted to kiss him. Uh, and uh, that count in the indictment carries a penalty of 18 months. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not arguing here that uh, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, clearly he violated military discipline, and he probably made life uncomfortable for some of the women that were under him. I don't have any sympathy for him in that regard. I don't think he's a good guy if, if what if what he's charged of is true. But I think that a tr- that, that to face a, uh, a penalty of 57 years is uh, you know a sort of political correctness becoming a human rights violation. And it's not the only, I mean, uh, listen, I, I don't have time. I, you, know, you could easily write a whole book on this subject. And I've already been accused by somebody in the audience of taking up too much time, so I won't. But there are many, many examples, uh, I think, of, of the way in which uh, male heterosexual desire has fallen under suspicion. No, that's, well, <laughs> um, that's because he's a Democrat. <laughs> if he were a Republican, he wouldn't benefit from that.
1: You know, I thought we were going to mm. really be the one group of more than two adults in America who are going to get through a night without talking about Bill Clinton, but... Let's open it up. you want to talk about Bill Clinton?
2: Yeah, I'd like to. Um,
1: I'm really, I was hoping that it wouldn't be the center of the conversation, but I thought maybe something would be said. So do you want to talk about it? Anybody want to respond to that? Um, I think uh, um, I am very uncomfortable with a prosecutor. I I have to say, I am a lot more uncomfortable with Kenneth Starr than I am with Bill Clinton. I am a lot more uncomfortable with people who wear wires and take um, illegal testimony. Um, and who I am very uncomfortable with the use, per, and I think that I'm not, I would like to bracket for one moment what Bill Clinton actually did. Kenneth Starr makes me a heck of a lot more nervous for my civil liberties than anything Bill Clinton ever did. And. Uh, I, th- I think Kenneth Starr is the danger in this country. And, and I, I wish that the focus would be put on him. That's, you asked what I personally think. That's what I think. Um, yeah, come up to the microphone. Talk about it.
6: Is my mic on? Yeah, may I read one quotation which just seems pertinent? Uh, This is while this thing is coming up. It's by Graham Greene. We exaggerate the sexual appetite in ourselves to take the place of the love that we inadequately feel. And that's a little bit a critique of the subject to which I have agreed to talk.
1: Yeah. Uh,
11: I, I don't like talking in front of, in front of microphones and things, I, but I just want to say that it seems very timely that what's going on in the Oval Office coincides with this panel. I don't know when this panel came into being, and to not talk about it seems almost ridiculous. And so I agree with the young man who was speaking before about it, that it's a topic that should be open to discussion with all of you, and. I don't think we've talked about much tonight here at all. So it's actually getting interesting.
1: <laughs> Do you have anything new to say about Clinton? Uh,
11: I, I think it, it's a very interesting phenomenon, what is going on, the fact that this man's approval ratings are going up and up and up along with his penis. And he, <laughs> uh, you know, it, I think it says a lot about America that is actually good. that is saying that we are more interested in getting on with the business of our lives and raising our kids and doing our thing than than patrolling someone's morality. To keep, you know, that phrase (laughs) keeps coming up. And whatever he and Hillary have going, that's their thing. If he goes to war with Iraq, you will see me out on the streets protesting. But what he does with whomever, I don't care, sexually.
6: Mm-hmm. But you've just made a case for saying that his this does not belong to the subject, intolerance and sex, because you're saying that we show I'm a great I'm, deal of I'm tolerance. On, I'm, on voice in this audience. I'm saying open up the
11: topic to see what other people have to say. That's all.
6: Yeah,
5: I've sort of not I mean I think it's well, we absolutely should talk about it and it's part of the it's part of why we're sitting up here, I think. And to my mind it's uh, the manifestation of um, Uh, the recent problems with sex, I find Clinton so, and I don't know why my opinion means anything and why I'm up here saying it in this way, and that's why I've hesitated to, because we all have, you know, as many opinions as we're sitting out there with in terms of this, but I just find um, uh, this is just a continuation of the utter lack of integrity that Clinton has shown in in uh, in many many different ways, from welfare to um, gay and lesbian rights to any number of things, and so, to to my mind, um, the, the notion that he is a um